If you have your Bibles here, please would you turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. And we are still in chapter 3. We've been having a very specific conversation over the last few weeks. And uh, thinking about Father's Day and thinking about what God has been doing in the life of our church over the course of this entire series and more specifically over the last few weeks. One of the words that I feel like can describe what God is doing is that He has been fathering us, right? He has been fathering us. He's been speaking to us. He's been speaking to us about our identity. He's been speaking to us about our future, about our purpose, about who we are, what He has done on our behalf, all He has given us. And He has also been teaching us how to live because that's what good fathers do, right? And more specifically, it feels like the last couple of weeks, our good father has sat us down, his children, to have a very important little conversation with us. And our good father has been speaking to us about our sin. Now, again, as, and the leaders were actually chatting about this the other day. As we try and evaluate what God is doing, it really feels like as he's been fathering us, and again, this is something fathers do, he's been moving many of us from the shallow end of faith into the deep end. The problem is, and if you've ever taught your kids how to swim, we don't like the deep end the first time round. We like the idea of the deep end, but we don't like the actual deep end. The, the, the shallow end, man, you put your feet down and you feel the solid ground and you feel safe. But when we get pushed into the deep end, we feel that fear, the fear of the unknown, Maybe some of us love the deep end. We love the opportunities. We love bomb drops and somersaults and, and uh, picking things up from the bottom of the pool. But it takes a while to acclimatize to that, right? And sometimes, again, if you've ever wanted to teach your children how to swim, it sometimes means letting them just struggle a little bit in order to regain or to gain that confidence to actually put their arms and legs to work and swim. But what comes with the deep end are infinitely more opportunities that were in the shallow end. And so if you feel like God has been doing that to you and you're like, I thought this was supposed to be fun. I just want to give you a sense of faith in what you might be moving into the deep end, but it is a good thing. And you have a loving father who is so watchful over you. So my kids, age seven and nine, uh, they have been learning the Lord's Prayer. I know they've learned it in uh, Lifehouse and they've learned it at school. And sometimes when we ask them to say grace, instead of saying sort of a more traditional grace about food, they will say the Lord's Prayer. And uh, Steve, the pastor, jumps in and he's like, boys, you know what? Um, it's very cool that you can recite the Lord's Prayer off by heart, but you have to know what it means. Do you know what it means? Yes, Dad, we know what it means, but they know what's coming. A long sermon. So <laughs> I was like, you know what, boys? I'm not gonna bore you over dinner. Let's eat, but I wanna have an ongoing conversation with you about what the Lord's Prayer means. And so the next day we're in the car, we're going to work and I'm wanting to do with them what I've done with you many times where we've spoken about there's no magic in just saying the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer shapes us. It gives us a posture with regards to how we engage with God. And in that we find radical transformation. So wanting to take my little boys and how do I do the same with them? So boys, what are the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. 
Okay, boys, what do good dads do? And I'm hoping they're gonna point towards some stuff I do because, you know, you know, we want need that affirmation from our children. So what do good dads do? And Nate was awesome. He said, no, they make us yummy food. And I'm like, oh yes, that's the Pullman household. That's what good dads do. And my goal is this. Here's what good dads do. Imagine what perfect dads do. So if good dads give us good food, how much more concerned is our perfect father with our, what we feed ourselves and how he nourishes us and gives us strength? Okay, what else do good dads do? Well, they give us a bed and a house. Well, how much more does our perfect father want to look after our needs and our concerns? The next one needed a bit of prompting. Okay, so boys, when you're naughty, what do good dads do? <laughs> oh, they, they punish us. I was like, oh gosh. Um, you know, and I was trying to explain to them the nuanced differences between punishing and disciplining. You know, this is not just retributive. This is shaping you and dad knows what's best. Look behind me. They're like looking out the window now. They've totally lost the conversation. <laughs> but the point is from time to time, good dads sit down with their children and talk about what's best and what's not best for them. And we say, hey boys, there's something I'm seeing in you. But it's not just about stopping these little things in their lives. It's about saying, man, but, but I want to prepare you for the real world. I want you to grow in responsibility. I want you to grow in joy. And I have some idea of what gets in the way of that. So let's have a conversation. And God has been doing exactly that with us. So the last two weeks, and this will be the third week, and the final week we're talking about this specifically. We've been talking about killing sin. And our good father has been saying, here's what I want for you. And there are some things that get in the way. So let's talk about it. Let's work together on this. So I'm gonna read the verses that we have been dealing with. And um, just to let you know, if today's the first time you're with us, I strongly encourage that you go back to two weeks ago and last week online or on the podcast or, or our church app. Not because I think anything I've had to say is awesome, but because we've tried to lay very important foundations and today we're trying to be so practical. And if all you hear is the practical things, it's just gonna be another 10 things for you to do as opposed to understanding the bigger picture, all right? So we're dealing with the same few verses and I'm gonna read from chapter three, verse five, where Paul writes this to this church and he writes it to us, put to death therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. There's a BC in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things. There's an AD, such, such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And up to now in this book, we've been talking about how God has done the incredible work of salvation. And when we are saved, it is Him, 100% Him. But when it comes to our transformation, God is at work. And we've spoken about this in the last few weeks. But these verses are speaking more about what we do to partner with Him and tap into His power. And therefore, there are these assumptions. Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, I'm not asking you to do this. I'm implying that you are doing these things that you are putting to death these things in your life, that there is a BC, that you are heading towards the AD, that you are putting on new things. And so we've been talking about that, and again, one step a little bit more practical this week. 
Now, I know the word sin sounds like a very religious word. It's not the kind of word except when it's used in kind of uh, almost like a joking context outside of a church environment. But as we understand sin, I, I really believe it is just a good explanation of human nature. Whether you are religious or not, when we understand that, that life is messy, I'm messy, I'm a mess. I've disappointed myself and, and I failed to live up to my own standards, let alone God's standards. And that is true of every single one of us in this room, right? And, and so my life is messy. My messy life engages with your messy life and it doesn't always look good. All right, put those people together and you've got a school or a church or a business or a family and it's gonna be messy, right? It doesn't matter who you are, life is messy. And then the best word we can use to describe the internal, the external is sin. In fact, some of you, this is the very reason why some of you are walking away from God. It's because of sin. Maybe it's sin in your own life. Maybe you're just so tired of trying and you're like, this is never gonna change. I am never gonna change. And so I give up. And so I'm just gonna walk out. Maybe some of you, again, we've referred to kind of the list of things that we're supposed to be taking off, the list of things we're supposed to be putting on. And some of you have said, you know, I actually prefer this list. And very intentionally, you just say, oh, well, I'm gonna live this list out rather than that list. For some of you, the reason that, that you've been pushed away from God is other people's sin, even in a church environment. Maybe you've looked at people that you've admired and you discovered how sinful they truly are. And they've kind of talked the talk, but they haven't really walked the talk. You said, well, if that's what Christians are about, they're just hypocrites, I'm out of here. And some of you have looked at Christians who have tried to come with all these rules, kind of cold-hearted commitment to these externalities without any genuine love and transformation. And again, you said, man, if that's what Christianity is about, I'm out. And so sin is always at the core of why we are often and regularly walking away from God. Whereas the nature of this conversation is saying, can we flip that around? Can we talk about sin in a way that moves us towards Him? And today I wanna to give us some practical ideas as to how we can do that. So when we look at the opening chapters of the Bible, it describes how sin entered the world, but it also pretty much tells the story of every single one of our sinful encounters. So Genesis chapter two, before sin enters the world, God says to Adam and Eve, his creation, he says, listen, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. In other words, here's God's heart for us. I want you to be free. I want you to explore. I want you to create. I want you to develop potential. Man, I want this to be such a good life for you. Just do not eat from this tree. Now, what do we do when we're told what we can't do? We don't care about everything else. We want to know about that tree. Hey, kids, you can play in the whole house. You can do whatever you want. Play in the garden, climb the tree, jump in the pool. Just do not go in this drawer. And from that point onwards, their freedom is obsolete because they don't care about the house. They don't care about the garden. They want to know what is in that drawer. And Adam and even from that point onwards, and it's been their story, it's been our story. Their desire for what appeared to be good overpowered their desire to trust God's wisdom. And that has been our story ever since, right? So I wanna talk about how this story unfolded and how this sin sets in place a domino reaction, which again, our lives and our stories approximate almost every single time. And then I wanna show you how the gospel 
undoes that story and brings us back to God. All right, so the first thing that happens to Adam and Eve when they sin is they experience deep shame. It says at the end of chapter two, it says they were in the garden and they were naked and the author adds these words and they felt no shame. You've got to say to yourself, why did the author put those words in? They were naked, felt no shame. Then they sin and then it says these words. It says that in chapter three, verses seven, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Now what's changed? They were naked before, they're naked after. Before it says they were naked and felt no shame, something has happened. They are seeing their nakedness through the eyes of shame. We find out that they, that they try and cover themselves up. They try and hide away because of the shame. All right, that they are feeling humiliated. They are feeling exposed. They are feeling vulnerable and not in the good way. They're feeling condemned. They are feeling judged because of the shame in their lives. Ed Welch, who wrote a great book called Shame Interrupted, he defines shame like this. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable. Not you've done something unacceptable, that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, and you feel exposed and humiliated. Now, for some of us, shame is right here. The minute I say the word, you feel it. You feel unacceptable. A whole lot of things that you've done come flooding into your mind. And it's not just, oh, a little bit of uh, like, man, I, I messed up there and it went on a bit of a journey there. But you feel like you are still in there. You feel like you are defined by that. Or something has happened to you. And again, the shame just floods you right now. For some of you, the shame's right here. But some of you are sitting there saying, well, I haven't been through anything traumatic and, and I'm not really experiencing any shame. And I want to say to you, every single one of us at some level experiences deep and profound shame. It's just we're not always aware of it. Shame talks to our identity and who we see we are. So if you want to kind of identify your areas of shame in your life, I want to ask you this question. When you take a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror, I'm not talking about when you're brushing your teeth, putting makeup on and getting your hair looking good. I'm talking about those moments in life that have caused you to stop and think. And you've had to look at yourself. In those moments, who do you see? Who do you think you are? Because shame is when we start to believe some of the things that have been said about us, we start to believe the lie that you're not enough. You started to believe what your, your, your parents said or what your teacher said or what some people in primary school, that they said, you will never amount to anything. You are of no value. And at some point we believed that. You will never do any good. And as we look at ourselves, there's a deep part of us that is probably, we're not engaging it cognitively more than once or twice a year but at some deep point, I believe that to be true. And then we live out of that space. Think about your self-talk. I mean, um, my, my nine-year-old Levi, he's learning to play chess. And you know, at some point, you're like trying to give him a chance. At this point, he needs to give me a chance because... I am really trying my utmost, not that I'm a really good chess player, uh, but he is playing really, really well. And a couple of times I will do something and he'll take out my queen or take out my bishop. And I'm like, Stephen, you idiot. 
Now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we believe those words. When we actually fundamentally believe that there is something profoundly wrong and broken about me that will cause others, if they knew this, they would reject me. And at some level, every single one of us, whether we're aware of it or not, are dealing with this in our lives. It's a consequence of sin. We look at ourselves with new eyes and we don't see the truth anymore. And we interpret a difference and a broken reality. But that doesn't feel great. We don't like walking around being cognizant of our brokenness and how people would reject me if they knew about me. So we do the next thing. This is the next part of the domino effect. Sin and shame, we cover up. Man, I don't want people looking at my nakedness. I don't want people be looking at my failure and my failings. And I don't want people to get to know the real me because they would reject me. So we cover up. All right, and, and we cover up in different ways and we sometimes cover up with good things. Some of us are like, man, if, if I could be sort of super good looking Steve, then they could get to know that Steve and they don't get to know the Steve. All right, maybe if I had lots of money, then they would get to know that Steve, they don't have to get to know me. Or funny Steve. Now, there's nothing wrong with being funny. But sometimes it's a projected identity to cover up who I am. And so, depending on the sin and the shame, sometimes I just walk a life of deceit and lying because man, if my wife only knew, if my kids only knew, they can't know the real me, all right? Because that would be rejected because I'm defiled. So I need to put another me forward. I'm covering up, I'm lying, I'm deceiving. Feels like I'm doing the right thing, right? So we're doing what Adam and Eve did there and which leads to the next step. God walks into the garden after this moment and he says, hey guys, where are you? Now, of course he knows where they are. Of course he knows what's happened. But he wants them to own up to the reality that they are covering up and hiding. And again, we do the same thing. We hide, we, we, we move around, we share this call of God, where are you? And, and we don't want to answer that call, right? We don't want to be around possibly other believers because somehow, and again, this because we assume that we're so broken that nobody can be like me. So if I'm around other believers, man, it's like being too close to the light. So I, I prefer the grays, I prefer the darkness, I prefer the shadows. So we move away from other believers. We move away from God. We move away from the light for our self-protection. So we don't have to feel this yucky feeling of thinking about the shame and who I really think I am. Sometimes we can even be very religious and be doing the same things. We can be in church, and this is just the way of human nature, every single Sunday. We can be in life groups. But man, the, the you people get to know is not the real you. So you pray, but, but it's never real. It's never you. It's never your heart. It's always the right things. It's the right things to say. You've got the answers in life group, but it's not the real you. It's not where you're at, right? So we can appear so, and we can project this religious exterior, but it's not you. And it's all because somewhere there's a deeply held belief that, man, if people got to know this, I'd be rejected. It starts a sin, which leads to shame, which leads to covering up, which leads ultimately to hiding from the Lord's presence. Now, let's just think about where that leads. I mean, this is just gonna be logical. 
what is the end point of that system? Where because of your shame, you hide up and, and you cover up and then you move away from people and from God, which invariably is gonna lead you to doing more sin, either intentionally or out of your brokenness, which is gonna cause you to feel the shame again, which is gonna cause you to cover up again, which is gonna cause you to move away from God, which is gonna lead to more sin, which is gonna lead to more shame, which is gonna lead you to cover up and get even better at it and move away from people, right? Move away from your kids, move away from your spouses, move away from the people who really love you. I mean, where does that go? Just logically, that is not leading you towards paths of life, right? And I want to show you now for the rest of our message this morning how the gospel undoes and works against every single one of these moments. See, some of us have come to know the gospel as the little mantra that I say when I got saved. And you forgot about it and you went back onto your own path. But guys, the gospel doesn't just save us. The gospel is what transforms us. And when we tap, when we want to say, and Craig spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, man, we want to partner with God in this. This is not going to be my efforts, but somehow I'm going to work hard and tap into God's power. It is us tapping into the truth of the gospel, which is the way we tap into His grace and His available power. And it's the way I experience the undoing of the, of the garden, the undoing of sin, and I start to feel and experience transformation. So the first thing the gospel does as it moves us from experiencing shame to receiving a new identity with emphasis on receiving. It's given to you. You don't earn it. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't say fix yourself up, then come to God, and then maybe I'll change you. No, it says come with your brokenness. You, you need a perfect human being. You need a perfect God to give you a new identity. Man, and the gospel is, here is your new self. Here is your new identity. And for the rest of our lives, learning how to believe that is true and live that out. It's a brand new identity. As Bianca prayed earlier, when we are a child of God, there's nothing you can do to make Him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you less. Because you're a child, you're a son, you're a daughter. Such an incredible, incredible truth. Jeff van der Stelt, a pastor and an author, he says this, you do who you are. So if you fundamentally believe, that the way I say it is, we fundamentally act out of who we believe we are. So if you at some deep level, you can give all the right answers in Sunday school, you can give all the right answers in church, you can say all the right things out of your mouth, but at your deepest part of who you are, if you believe there's something wrong with you, you're broken, you're unlovable, you're always gonna be acting out of that space, especially in times of difficulty and trauma and conflict. Doesn't matter how much money you've got. Doesn't matter how fit you are. Doesn't matter um, how good looking you are. Doesn't matter how much power you have. Doesn't matter how much you project this religious exterior. If you at a deep level fundamentally believe this lie about you, you will act out of that space. But the contrary is true. If we truly internalize the, the gospel and we believe those first two words of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, that's who I am. I am loved not because of anything I've done. 
I'm not defined by my success yesterday. I'm not defined by my failure yesterday. I'm defined by Jesus. Man, and when that sinks in, I pray that God is doing that in us right now. We start living out of that space. We start acting out of our new identity. Some of you have had the privilege of buying a house. There's two types of people in this world when it comes to buying houses. Those that see the problems and those that see the potential. I won't tell you which way my wife and I work when it comes to that. All right, because some of us are just like, oh man, look at the lawn. Oh man, look how small the kitchen is. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Look at that. It's like, nah, pass. And some people walk in and they see something that doesn't look too great to everybody else and they go, wow. They don't see the work. They see the opportunities. They see the children in the garden. They see the smells coming out of the kitchen. They see the life groups in the lounge, right? And they're saying, that's what I see. And when it comes to us, we've got two ways of seeing ourselves. Some of us, we just see the problems. Some of us, we see the potential. And God, guys, this isn't positivist thinking. This is the gospel. When we learn to see ourselves, yes, we are still sinners. We're on a journey. We're not defined by that. I'm defined by who Jesus says I am. Timothy Keller, he pushes us even one step further. This almost sounds sacrilegious, but it is the gospel. He says this, how does the father love the son? That's how much he loves you. How much does the father enjoy the son? That's how much he enjoys you. Guys, if, if shame speaks a lie to us about our identity, the gospel speaks the truth to us about our identity. It is the ultimate starting point for killing sin. Now, the second thing that the gospel does and invites us into is if shame leads to covering up, well, the gospel leads us to confession. Instead of covering up, we confess. So if our default is to cover up, if our default is to lie, if our default is to pretend, because our assumption is, if people knew the real me, they'd reject me. But now we've already fixed that because I'm already fully accepted. So because I know I'm fully accepted, I can get real. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I don't have to pretend with my wife. I don't have to pretend with my father in heaven. You know what? That good thing that I did yesterday, I'm honest, there was really some selfish motives in that. I don't have to pretend otherwise because I'm already loved. When we confess, we are simply agreeing with God, again, not for condemnation. It's like walking to the doctor and saying, hey doc, there's something wrong with me. Why don't you just give me a, a tablet to fix me? He says, no, 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 we need to do some tests, figure out what's wrong. No, 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 I'm not into that. Just give me a quick tablet, you know? Doctor says, no, no, but we need to figure out. Is there something wrong in your brain or your heart or your lungs? Confession is saying, actually, actually, here's what's really wrong. We name it. We don't just say, and we'll talk about it now. Here's a few ideas when it comes to confession to help you do this practically. Number one, be painfully specific. Be painfully specific. Oh Lord, I, I struggle with lust. Please help me. No. I fantasized about so-and-so's wife yesterday. I clicked onto this website and I looked and I thought about X, Y, and Z. Don't just say, oh Lord, you know, just I, I've confessed my sin to you. No, no, no. I lost it with my kids. 
And in that moment, I wanted to hurt them. If I think about it, it's because my pride was wounded or whatever. It's about moving away from generalities and moving to specifics. And again, recognizing, man, nothing you confess is gonna make God love you less. Jesus has paid for that. And then we take this confession. You know, Lord, what I said to my wife yesterday, I really intended to hurt her. Jesus, you have paid for that. Which brings us to the next point of confession. Well, sorry, the third one, and I'm gonna come back just because I changed the way I was gonna tell the story. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves when we confess. We need to preach the gospel. 1 John 1 verses nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to wonder. Man, if I get real with God and I say, I really intended to hurt my wife. Oh, Jesus paid for that. And I'm forgiven. And my position in the family of God has not changed. The point that I skipped over was we need to be keeping short accounts. I think there's a reason that when Jesus teaches us how to pray, the first two words are our Father. So every single day we are reminding ourselves who we are in the gospel. But then every single day Jesus is teaching us to bring our sins to him. Lead us not into temptation, but forgive us trespasses, right? So that we can get real and we can confess. And number four, confess in community. James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The way we often say it here at church is we confess to God for forgiveness. We confess to one another for healing. You see, we, when we as a community, when someone sits you down and says to you, hey, Steve, I need to get real with you about some stuff. And if in that moment, God gives me the grace to respond to this person the way he would, now this person sees in flesh and blood what the gospel looks like. It's not just an idea. In community, in life group, I share with some of the other brothers in my group something that is really going on. And instead of responding with condemnation and instead of just also responding with some sort of blanket grace, no, they respond with unanimous acceptance of who I am and also a commitment to walk with me through that. Suddenly, my brothers are to me like Jesus is to me. It's the gospel played out in front of my eyes. And sometimes what confession and community looks like is going to the person that you sinned against. I mean, if you wanna figure out how to stop sinning, every time you sin against the person, go to them. And I can promise you now, you will stop very quickly. Right? But again, it doesn't change who people see I am. It doesn't change my identity. I'm already loved. And finally, instead of hiding and covering up like Adam, we step into the light towards God. We call this repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And I'm gonna unpack that in a second. Repentance, as we spoke about last week, and again, we spoke quite a lot about repentance last week. Really go catch up on that one. Um, repentance is not just the fact that I feel a little bit bad about my sins sometimes. And I intend to do something about it, but I do nothing about it. Repentance includes this whole process. I, thought, I start thinking differently. Start off with truly understanding who Jesus is, what the gospel is, how I fit into that picture, who I am now because of him. I'm thinking differently. I'm desiring differently. Instead of desiring these things, I'm desiring these things. I'm intentionally putting on new desires. 
Repentance refers to me actively taking off, putting to death certain habits and actively engaging the new creation that God has put within me. And then faith is simply walking towards God. God is inviting us out of hiding. He says, man, listen, that's your attempt at covering up. Let me cover up. All right, so what happened in Adam and Eve, they found some fig leaves, they covered themselves up. The God of heaven, their loving father comes to them and says, listen, that's never gonna work. And he finds an animal, he takes the skin of that animal and he covers them. Just a prefiguring of the fact that if we are truly gonna be covered, blood is gonna be shed, it's not gonna be our own. And it's gonna be a work of God's and it is that righteousness which covers you. Again, we believe that. Wow, Lord, your son shed his blood for my sin. And you cover me with your righteousness. That is now who I am. And because of that, we can step confidently into the light and we can step towards God. And I believe the faith is this, that we can only do that when we start to actually believe that God's ways are wise. And when God says, listen, there's some things you need to cut out of your life is because he knows that leads to death. And when he says, here are certain lifestyles and habits that you need to embrace, it's not just so that you can be a good little boy or girl. It means leading you somewhere. It's leading you towards righteousness. It's leading you towards life. And faith is, I choose to walk in that. I choose to walk towards God trusting that he has what is best for me and best for his kingdom at heart. This is the process that God is inviting us to. Think about the gospel of salvation. When we trust Jesus for the very first time, he gives us a new identity. He covers us with his righteousness. I confess my sin and he covers me and then I walk towards him in faith. But the Christian life is that doesn't, doesn't just happen 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I've been doing that every single day since then. It's a gospel. My father, my identity, confess my sin knowing I'm covered in righteousness. I choose to put off and I put on. God somehow empowers me by his spirit in that process. And it is me actively engaging the gospel, not just for my salvation, but for my transformation. And that undoes the work of the garden, that undoes the work of sin, and that undoes the work of shame in our lives. But let me say this, that takes incredible faith and courage to stand before your wife, to stand before your life group, to stand before another person in your life and say, here's the real me. You've got to know you're accepted. You've got to know that doesn't define you. You've got to know your father fully loves you already. And that gives you the courage and the power to do that. It's not easy, but I can tell you now, it is the path to transformation. It's choosing God every day. And I believe this is the opportunity that faces every single one of us today to choose him again. To choose him again today. Maybe you chose him yesterday. Cool, choose him again today. But maybe you realize I haven't been choosing God. Well, today's the day. Do you have an opportunity to choose him? Why? Because you trust him. 
and you trust where He's leading you. So we are gonna go to the communion table in a second. I think it's so apt that we end off this little family conversation about sin around the table where we are reminded of the gospel. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection from the cross reminds us that he was rejected so that I can be accepted. That Jesus was betrayed so that I could experience the intimacy with God. That the father turned his face away from his son so that he could turn his face towards me. And that is the invitation for every single one of us.